0: Friends, I want to invite you guys to turn over to Galatians chapter 6. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 6 to 10 in Galatians chapter 6. We get near the end of this letter. Uh, As you're turning over there, I I, um, I don't know if you guys are like this. If if you're a reader, if you like to read books, if you do, I don't know if you like to read the acknowledgments. I always do. I like to read the acknowledgments. You can learn some things about the story of a book, how it came to be, who was involved in shaping what's in it. One of the things that I notice as I read a lot of acknowledgements is that there's a kind of pattern to them, and they all include some basic elements that are pretty much always there. There's going to be a paragraph in there somewhere where where they say that uh, that, that so-and-so or over here, this group of people over there had a, had a hand in shaping this book. That It was them reading and giving commentary on it that shaped the ideas and improved them, it gives credit to them for their sourcing of the ideas that now made it into print. And then there's always another caveat after that that says... And all ongoing, enduring errors are mine, not their fault, my fault. So if there's anything good here, give them the credit. Anything bad here, it's my fault. I kind of feel like I need an acknowledgement section for this sermon today uh, because this was not my sermon to preach. Maybe you guys remember, if you were here last week, you remember the public service announcement uh, that, uh, that that beginning today and for the next several weeks, other elders here at Trinity are going to be preaching to you guys to benefit all of us to hear from other voices, uh, other men who are faithful and spend a lot of good time studying the Word so that we can feed on it. This week was to be Seth Jones, another one of the elders here, and Seth has been getting ready for his sermon for weeks, and it was an awesome sermon, let me tell you. He let me read the manuscript it was, uh, it was awesome. And he was super excited to preach, partly because he'd spent so much hard, hard work uh, in putting it together, and partly because he loves you and the chance to encourage you. And then, yesterday, Seth was down for the count with the flu. Wah, wah, wah. So you can pray for him. You can pray that God will give him new energy and, and, and give him what he needs to overcome it. You can pray for the rest of his family, as there tends to be a blast radius for for, for sicknesses like this, uh, and, then, and then you can know that he's probably going to be due some encouragement from you today. If anything about this message encourages you, you should know you have Seth to thank for it, because the, 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 the bones and most of the content here, I am building on Seth's work that was given to me yesterday. I want you to send him an email about anything you're encouraged by today, saying, thank you, Seth, for working so hard to encourage us. Your sermon encouraged me you're not encouraged today, well, you know who to blame, don't you? (laughs) You can blame me. I think of the message that Seth uh, worked and prayed over and tinkered with and refined as the kind of Thanksgiving feast many of us sat down to on Thursday, where everything's still piping hot and served in concert and in correct proportion, and it's all tasting like it's supposed to. And you can think of what I'm about to give you as more like the leftovers that some of you may eat this afternoon. You know, it's still there. The bones are there. But the favorites are probably already gone and the what's left has lost some of its zest and maybe the temperature is just a little bit off. You get the idea. But all jesting aside, in this reality that you're about to get my version of a wonderful sermon Seth prepared for you, uh, we all of us get a chance to remember and experience that it's the Word of God that God uses to feed us no matter who serves it up. It's His Spirit working in His Word. All of us get to remind ourselves of that today and experience something of it. So I'm glad to be up here, glad to be sharing this passage with you. It's a beautiful one. This section that we're going to be looking at today continues a a really practical section of the letter. Paul's trying to explain the difference that it makes for us to embrace the freedom that God offers us in the gospel when we know who we are in him because of what Jesus has done for us so that God becomes not a judge that we fear, but a father who cares for us and loves us because Christ has taken the judgment we deserved, then what are our lives for? That's what Paul's trying to answer. If we don't have to spend all of our time and energy trying to justify our lives, because Jesus has justified us, then what do we spend our time and energy doing? At the center of the section we're going to look at today is actually a really familiar proverb um, that, that Paul takes and uses for his own purposes. You've probably heard of the proverb um, that, not literally proverb, I mean just like a general saying that's out there in, in, in the world, probably familiar to you. You reap what you sow. Everybody's heard that before, right? You reap what you sow. That's what, that's what Paul's working with. And at be, if you boil it all the way down, that proverb means that actions have consequences. And you should expect that and take that into account. If you sow watermelon seeds, you should expect watermelons. You shouldn't expect squash. You'd need different seeds for that. Actions have consequences. But what Paul's going to do here, actually, is put his own spin on this proverb. He's actually got something a lot more specific in mind than just that actions have consequences, so be careful what you do. Don't be a fool. He has something much more specific. In, in, in fact, what he wants us to notice, and what we're going to spend most of our time unpacking together today, is that we must be careful where we sow our seed, what the soil is that we're planting in. Because where we sow our seeds, where we make our investments of our resources, will determine what comes of our investments. We've got to make sure we're investing where we can't lose. That we're not throwing away our resources where they have no chance of success. That's what we're going to look at together this morning. Now, what I wanted you to know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, here's how I'm going to break it down. I want you to notice two different soils, two different places you can plant, two different banks to make your investments. Two different soils. Then I want you to notice two different crops that come from these two different soils. And then we'll finish off with two ways to sow wisely. Two different soils, two different crops, two ways to sow wisely. Those are our three headings for what we're going to consider today. I'm going to read the passage here. What I want you to notice is that there at the very beginning of the passage in verse 6, you have what, what I'm going to be treating as an, as an application of the main point. And then in verse 10, another application. This is going to be our, our two ways to sow wisely. And then in the middle, sandwiched between these two applications, you get his main point that, that, that helps us make some sense out of the two things that he calls us to do. So notice that as we read, and then we're going to walk that through together. I'm going to ask you now to stand with me in honor of God's Word while I read from Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 6, um, and, and reading through verse 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want you to first notice the two different soils that Paul calls our attention to. These are in verse 8. So verse 7 gives us this, this proverb that he's reworking for his own purposes. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. And then in verse 8, he drives home what he really wants us to pay attention to. One who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. And one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In that verse, we get the two soils that I want you to notice and understand and the two different crops that I want you to see springing up from those soils. So what are the two soils? Let's start there. We've seen this contrast before in Galatians. It's a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. We can sow our seeds in the soil of the flesh, or we can sow our seeds in the soil of the spirit. The context helps us to understand what Paul has in mind here. Let's start with the flesh. So when we hear flesh, a lot of times our first thought is physical bodies, the physical, the material, as opposed to the spiritual side of us, as opposed to what's going on in the inside, the heart, if you will. And sometimes we can think that, that Paul is teaching here that our bodies, the physical world is a bad, are, are bad, to be resisted, to be overcome, and that the spiritual world is where the real action is. And that actually isn't what Paul's saying. It's not what he means by flesh. Paul has a very different understanding of the body. He sees it as a good thing. Yes, affected by sin, but, but good and a gift from God. When he says flesh, he means something a lot more specific. What he means is a kind of orientation to the world. He means what we would call basic narcissism or selfishness, where we look at everything out there and make it all about us, where we become and sort of establish ourselves as the sun in the solar system and all the other things are just planets revolving around us, where, where, where people and, and even God become to us either means to advancing what we're hoping for or barriers to getting there, either to be exploited or to be overcome or bulldozed one way or the other. Where our environments are bent in on our agenda, our needs, our desires. That's what he means by the flesh. Our desire for a life on our terms, aimed at our agenda, carried out by our power, for our glory. One example that helps us see that's what he's talking about is the way he used Abraham back in chapter 4. In chapter 4, he was talking about the two different children Abraham had by two different wives. He knew, or Abraham knew that God had promised to make him a great nation, that a lot of, uh, a lot of children were going to come from him and be built up by God into this new people from which God would rebuild the whole world. But it took a long time for God to deliver on that promise. And in the meantime, Abraham decides that he's going to take some initiative. So he marries one of his servants and produces a child through her. Paul calls that the child of the flesh, not because it came through Abraham's body, but because it came through Abraham's initiative. It came through Abraham's agenda. It was Abraham grabbing life by the horns and saying, this is how it's going to go. That made that child a child of the flesh, as opposed to the child of the promise, who Abraham had to wait for, who Abraham couldn't produce on his own, whom Abraham received as a free gift of grace from God's hand. So, to sow to the flesh, as Paul mentions here in verse 8, would be to invest our resources, our time, our energies in the agendas we set out for ourselves. The flesh asks only, what do I want? And how much of what I want can I actually afford? And there's another soil that Paul draws us to, and it's very different from the soil of the flesh. It's the soil of the spirit. The spirit for Paul, well, he represents God's power at work in the world and especially at work in God's children. It's God's spirit, chapter 3 told us, that gives us faith. We wouldn't believe the gospel unless God, by his spirit, opens our eyes so that we see it as beautiful and and, and trust in it. It's God's spirit, chapter 4, that teaches us to trust God as a child, trusts the Father. He says it's his spirit that makes us cry out, Abba, Father, and mean it. It's God's Spirit that delivers on all of God's promises. That's the uh, Isaac and Ishmael, Abraham and Sarah and Hagar example I just mentioned. That's also in chapter 4. And it's God's Spirit, chapter 5 tells us, that bears fruit in the lives of all those who trust in Him. So think when you think of the Spirit as a kind of soil, think of God's power fulfilling God's promise set out by God's good purpose for your life and all for God's glory. That's the Spirit's work. God's power, fulfilling God's promise, set out by God's good purpose for your life and all of it aimed at God's glory. What you want to do, Paul is saying, is put your resources, whatever you may have, in that soil. Bank on the spirit, not on the flesh. Bank on his work. Bank on the fruit that he will bear, not on what you can do on your own. Not on how far you can carry yourself. Do you see how this proverb here, as Paul's using it, is actually—it's way bigger than just making good decisions. You know, sow what you reap, or you reap what you sow, rather. And there's a way of using that that's just basically saying, make good decisions because you're going to stand or fall on your own two feet. So be careful. That actually works against everything Paul's been saying in this letter. That's not how he wants you to think about your life. I mean, he wants you to think. Of, he's using us in a different way. Something much more specific. He's saying, be careful where you put your resources. It needs to be somewhere that you can, you can trust. And if, it's only, if your resources are only going to go as far as you can carry them, it's not going to be far enough. You need to bank on the Spirit. That's what he's saying. And that leads to the two crops. So these two different soils that Paul's drawing our attention to produce two very different crops. Paul points us to what they are so that we'll know where we need to make our investments. The two crops are also in verse 8. The one who sows to his flesh and that soil will from that soil, from the flesh, reap corruption. There's crop number one. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There's crop number two. Corruption or eternal life. Those two things actually mirror one another. Because corruption, what I want you to know about that, just start there. Is that it isn't the kind of corruption maybe you're initially thinking of the kind of corrupt official who takes bribes under the table, you know, for his own agenda. That's not the kind of corruption he has in mind. Corruption here, this word is is used for for crops that are decaying, that are that are rotting. So corruption here has is sort of a euphemism for death. I I think of the way that, that the psalmist used the word corruption in Psalm 16, where there he's praying to God. Expressing his hope, his confidence that God won't let him see corruption, that he won't leave him in the grave. When you hear corruption here, think death. And when you hear Paul's warning not to sow to the flesh, what you should hear him saying is something a whole lot like what is said by the author of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. You could spend your life building up your resume, building up your storehouses. Pursuing your agenda. And not only could you do that, you could actually be great at that. You could end your life with a full storehouse, with fame to go on, and, 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 and more, than, more than you could have ever dreamed of. You could end your life with people all around you who love you, a family that's big, that's, that's, that's all oriented towards you and your every need. That's basically how this guy in Ecclesiastes lived. He had it all. And yet, as he neared his own death, he realized that all he had was vanity. As far as, as, far as it, it built him up, it was a losing game because there was nothing that could protect him from the grave. Paul's warning that if we live life on our terms, then everything we invest in our own agenda, everything that's dependent on our power, everything we do to build up our resume will only and always die with us. On our own, if we're the soil, what we're investing doesn't stand a chance no matter how good we may be at what we do. Anybody here heard of Linus Pauling? I saw one thumbs up a couple. I had not heard of him until somebody recently told me about him. Linus Pauling was the only person to receive two unshared Nobel Prizes. In 1954, he won one in chemistry. Just to round out his resume, eight years later, he won the Peace Prize. I had no idea who he was. You're not going to beat that resume. And no one will remember you either. So as long as you are the point of your life, then under the best of circumstances, you are sowing corruption, decay, death. I like Seth's analogy for this. He talked about he talked about uh, uh, how recently he was on a big homemade ice cream kick, making a lot of ice cream out in the yard. And you know, you've got to use salt for that, right? I mean, you've got you to keep that ice salted. I have no idea why, personally. But it, it makes a big difference. I've learned that from experience. And so once you get a lot of melt and there's a lot of salt in there, what you've got is some seriously salty water that will kill what it touches, and he wasn't thinking about that when he decided to pour the leftover salt water next to his patio, on his grass. Yielding a dead patch of grass that is dead, I believe, to this day. Because he said no matter what he's tried to do, put extra seed out there, put the manure out there, put the extra good soil out there, and whatever he puts out there, what happens is more death. The seeds just lie there. It's because the soil is corrupted. It has no chance of bearing a crop. And what Paul is telling us is that that's what the flesh is too. Like, it, 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 there's just no chance you succeed. So whatever you pour into your own agenda for your life is wasted. Don't sow there. Don't sow in the flesh. That only yields corruption. Instead, sow to the Spirit. Invest where He's at work. Put your resources into His soil. Because when you do, Paul says, the crop that comes out of that soil, well, that's eternal life. You see how well that, that matches up to the corruption? What you put into the soil where the Spirit is at work, it can't fail. Nothing can take it out. When you aim the resources God has given you, who you are, what you have, and what God is doing to bring life in you and in the world, then you're sowing to the Spirit. That life starts to spread now in us by his fruit. I don't think it's a coincidence that just just before this text, in chapter 5, Paul's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He's a rich soil full of of all that nasty compost that you put on top of it so that everything grows, right? That's the kind of soil that he is. He is doing work in your life. He is bringing out love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness, gentleness and self-control. He's doing that. So you want to be there where that work is happening. The eternal life he's talking about has already begun in the life of his people. And it will not stop. Because we are not yet what we will be one day. This is a promise that the life that has already begun in us will go on forever. This is a promise that God has given an answer to the corruption that we brought on ourselves. And that if we give up our attempt to build a name that will live on here, God will give us a name that will never die. There's a reason I read from Romans 8 before we celebrated communion together earlier in this service. I think it, it, it echoes back and forth to the text we're looking at here. There's something beautiful about how Paul connects the spirit earlier in Romans 8 from what we read. To our being children of God who know to cry out, Abba, Father, with confidence that he hears us. And then the promise that we did read, that death cannot separate us from his love. When we are to God as precious children, when he wouldn't even spare the life of his only son, Jesus, to give us what we need. We don't have to be afraid that death can destroy what's most precious to us. He won't let death defeat us. Because he won't let it separate us from him. I think that's what David prayed so beautifully in Psalm 16. Centuries before Paul knew to write those words. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo corruption. Psalm 16 prays. You will not allow your Holy One to see the grave. That's the promise that Paul is reminding us of. When we invest, where the Spirit at work. So, he raises the question that I want to finish with. I mean, if, if the, the key is to sow what we have in the soil that is God's Spirit, to invest where His power is at work, so we can depend on Him to get the job done and not have, to, not have to spin our wheels trying to make our way in the world, then what does it actually look like for us to put ourselves there into that soil, to invest in where He's working? How can we do it? What does it look like to trust his power with your resources? I think that's what Paul's giving us in verse 6 and in verse 10. Two examples on either side of his main point to show us what it looks like to take his main point and put it into practice. I want to show us two ways that Paul gives to sow to the Spirit. I love that Paul in these two examples doesn't try to give us a comprehensive answer to this question I'm raising. What does it look like to sow to the Spirit? Well, Paul doesn't give us a full answer to that. What he does is give us two really easy, tangible, immediately recognizable opportunities today. And what he does is draw our focus to what's local. He draws our focus to the local church and to the ministry of the Word in the local church and to the ministries of mercy in the local church as we express the love shown to us towards one another in our needs. The first example he gives us in verse 6 is about trusting that the Spirit works through the Word. The last example he gives us in verse 10 is about expressing love to each other as those who have been loved by God through sharing our resources. So I'm going to show you two ways to sow to the Spirit. Verse, the way in verse 6 is that we should support gospel teaching or preaching. And the way in verse 10 is that we should support the needs of others in the congregation. We should put our resources into the soil that is the Spirit's work through the Word. And we should put our resources in the soil that is the Spirit bearing fruit of love through us to one another. So let's talk about support for gospel teaching and preaching first. That's verse 6. And then talk about sharing our resources with each other in verse 10. Verse 6 says, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. It's verses like this and a few others that have created cultures in local churches from the earliest local churches where, where it's possible, the congregation uses its resources to allow some or, or at least one of its pastors to spend time doing the work God has called that pastor to do, to prepare to feed God's people with the food that gives life. It's not a new practice. It's not something that was designed here in the West where we have more resources to deal with or where we have a more professional culture. It's not that at all. It's something that's baked into the very beginning of local church life. In fact, I think far from being a, a new thing here in the West that we have professional ministers, if you will, it's actually what we've done to that job in the West that, key, that sometimes uh, makes us susceptible to losing the beauty of what Paul is teaching here. So let me just say at the top here that I don't think Paul is saying you should share all good things, and, and he, he is referring to, to money. Everyone agrees with that with the commentators that we've read. He's t- talking about here about your financial resources. I don't think he says you should share the good things with one who teaches because what you really need in your life is professionals. His focus here isn't on the preacher and whether the preacher is worth it as if you've got to have a pro to get real work done. You know, Paul teaches us in other letters, crystal, with crystal clarity, that the real work of ministry and most of the work of sharing God's word with one another is done by the members, by the saints. That's Ephesians chapter 4. And honestly, whenever market forces come into it, you know, whether it's because you've got a, a teacher who sees pay as an entitlement, or a congregation who sees themselves as consumers of something they buy from the preferred provider, whenever those market realities come into the church and how pastors who are on staff relate to their members whose money pays them, everybody suffers. Only bad comes from that. That's not what Paul's pointing us to. What he is saying is not a point about the teacher being worth your investment, but about the word being worth your investment. See, See, remember... The context here is, you want to sow where the spirit is at work. You want to be where he is. You want your resources going to what he's at work doing, because what he's doing cannot fail. It's a guaranteed successful investment. So put your resources where he's at work. Where's he at work? I'm just thinking back to chapter three. There, Paul says, "You began by the Spirit. Your life in Christ came from the Spirit." And what he says is that that spirit, the beginning of your faith, came from hearing with faith. The spirit is at work where we hear the gospel and where he gives us faith to believe it. The soil of the spirit is the word working its way through the life of the congregation. So if you believe that, if you believe that the spirit works through the word of the gospel, put your money where where that is. From the earliest churches, it's been seen as a tremendous advantage to have some teachers who are able to spend most of their time in the Word, mining it out for others and teaching them how to do the same for themselves. Friends, the Bible, God's Word to us, it is, it is deep and rich enough to be worth that kind of effort. No matter how far we go into it, we never reach the bottom. So better for all of us then to go as deep as we possibly can But that kind of work takes time. It's difficult work to do. It doesn't play nice with other kinds of responsibilities. It needs a kind of focus that often other jobs would conflict with or prevent. So good for all of us if we have someone who can spend their best mental hours studying, digging deep to feed all of us. Not to mention the fact that there's a big gap between the world of the Bible and the world we're living in. So we trust that the word is really relevant to us, and we need to understand how, but that's not easy to do. A lot of times it just takes a lot of bridge building to figure out what are the connection points between what was said there and what we need now. That work takes a tremendous amount of time to do. So, what Paul is saying is that this is how God has chosen to build us up by his Spirit. This word ministry, it's work he's asked pastors and elders to do. And it's work he's asked here church members to support with their money. So some of those pastors can do this work with all their time while still supporting their families. If you believe that the spirit works through the word, and if you believe that his work happens mostly in the context of local churches, then it makes sense to invest your money there for your sake and for the sake of your friends. That's... Practical point number one, there's a way to sow to the Spirit. It's one reason, friends, while though we give, as Christians, have have many wonderful opportunities to, to, to support the work of faithful organizations here in our city and around the world, one thing that Christians have always believed is that we don't have the option of whether or not to support our local church. That as Christians, we trust this is the agent of God's work in the world. So among whatever else we are supporting, we are definitely going to support here with what he's given us, whatever that may be, whatever it may look like. The other example that he gives us of how to sow to the Spirit is in verse 10, and this is where I'll finish. Paul ends this section in verse 10 saying, So then, as we have opportunity, basically as God has given us resources and he's given us needs close at hand that need what we have, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of the faith. Commentators say that what he's, when he says, when he says uh, let us do good to everyone, in this context, because of the, the talk about investing and sowing and reaping and the, the, the talk about sharing with those who teach you, he's still got money on the brain here. So though, of course, we want to do good in any way we can to anyone who has needs, who's anywhere around us, that here especially he's thinking about us using what God has given us to help those who need what we have. And that he's pointing us to especially do that in the church. Those who are of the household of the faith. It doesn't say that you can exclusively give to those in the church. But I think he means for us to see that that those who are in the church are a special responsibility we have. It's like my responsibility to, to neighbors, to people in my actual house, my family. It's different from my responsibility to people who live in Portland, for example, who I'm, I'm not going to know. You start close. You start local. Now, if my neighbor is hungry, I should do what I can to help. Then I have a different level of responsibility to make sure my own wife and children have food. You see how that works. It's just a principle we all live with. Paul is now applying that to life in the church. So what that means, friends, is that if inside our church anyone has a need, it's all of our responsibility to make sure it gets met. God will not leave that need unmet and He will use His people to meet it. We trust that He knows and that His providence always cares for His own and that we are part of how He gets that work done. Now, He warns us here not to grow weary in doing good. If you spend your money in ways like this on local churches, on the needs of your friends close at hand, it may wear you out. There's a reason he has to throw that in there. Sometimes that use of your money won't seem like a good investment. Sometimes you'll still feel other things would pay off more in one way or another. Remember, he says the flesh and the spirit are still at war inside of you. The flesh is still strong. It will pull you and your money towards other things that may for a time offer a promise of greater return. That means you're going to need help to make the right investments. You may even need help to know where you're actually investing now. And so I want to encourage you to use this concrete application about investing your financial resources where the Spirit is at work as an opportunity to take up the Christian friendship ideas we talked about last Sunday and invite somebody in your circle who knows you well enough to tell you what they think about how you're spending your money. How about that? Isn't that a shocker? We don't talk about money, right? It's a taboo. No one goes there. Why not go there? Why not find somebody you trust and give them access to your actual numbers and say to them, what do you think? I'm not sure about my investments right now and whether or not I'm sowing to the spirit or to the flesh. Who do you have in your life that you trust with that side of you? If you don't have anyone, friends, that's something to pray about and to seek. Who could you bring in on the fact that you're feeling the pull to invest yourself, some, invest in your own needs rather than sow where the Spirit works? These are questions worth thinking about, worth talking about in your small groups. We're praying about right now that God will give us the freedom in the gospel to live openly with one another and to sow where He's at work. I'm going to pray that right now for us. Father, thank you for your word, for speaking so clearly to us, for giving us the hope of a spirit that is at work even where, beyond what we could ever do, and we thank you for the freedom that comes from knowing you work where we can't, and we just pray now that you would help us to get out of our own way, like to, to, to not have our flesh disrupting our focus, pulling our hearts and even our purse strings in directions that only breed corruption. We want to have lives that are leveraged fully in the work that you are doing. And we pray that by your word today and through your people this week, you would draw us further in that direction. Give us investments that will reap eternal life. By the power of your spirit we pray, in Jesus' name, amen.